0: Happy New Year! Uh, I'm Gavin Giovanoni, the Professor of Neurology at Barts and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry, and this New Year uh, podcast, uh, as part of MS Selfie, is about the Attack MS study. Um, what we're trying to do with Attack MS is to try change the treatment paradigm, and for healthcare professionals to try and treat multiple sclerosis, or at least approach multiple sclerosis as we approach a stroke. Now, to give you some context, I would just like to discuss a historical patient of mine. Um, And this was a a young gentleman. Um, I saw him back in 2014 when he was 32 years of age. And he had been uh, diagnosed as having a clinically isolated syndrome. He presented after his first attack when he had an MS hug. That's a tight constriction band around his chest. He had lost feeling from the waist down and he had weakness in his legs. He was seen at his local hospital, had an MRI which showed an, uh, a lesion in his spinal cord, and his brain MRI was abnormal, and he was told he had clinically isolated syndrome. His neurologist at that time had decided that the best approach for him would be watchful waiting, uh, and he was told back then that not all people with CIS, clinically isolated syndrome, uh, gone to develop MS – and that the treatments available for CIS uh, at the time were not that effective and came with potentially life-threatening uh, or serious adverse events. So he took the advice of these neurologists and uh, went on to the so-called wait, watchful waiting protocol. And over the next six years, you know, he would come up annually uh, to see the neurologist, and he had symptoms in that six years. So uh, I suspect he was having mild attacks because he had intimate patches of numbness and tingling in his arms and legs. And the neurologist that had been seeing him ignored these as potentially mild attacks uh, and was waiting, was waiting for the next big attack before diagnosing him as having MS and offering him a disease-modifying treatment. Um, tragically, back then, this particular center was not doing annual MRI scans as part of monitoring, and now that's probably not happening anymore. I think one thing that has changed over the last decade is that almost all MS centers now uh, do annual MRI scans uh, as monitoring scans for patients. Anyway, he uh, got sec- referred to me for a second opinion after he had noticed that over the last 12 months he was getting progressive weakness in his lower limbs. When I saw him in clinic, he was actually using a walking stick, and he had said about a year ago that he'd had uh, increasing weakness in his lower limbs, um, which was probably a relapse, but since then, he had gradually progressed. Uh, He'd been given a a course of oral steroids by his local team, but it made little difference to his functioning. Uh, When I took a history from him, in addition to the lower limb weakness that was affecting his mobility, uh, he had bladder problems. He had chronic constipation and sexual dysfunction. He was having difficulty getting an erection and, uh, and reaching a climax. He had become depressed and very worried, uh, anxious about his job. Uh, he was having cognitive problems, and he mentioned having difficulty m- remembering things. Um, and uh, when I arranged for him to be re-imaged, he had a massive lesion load. Uh, he had gross brain atrophy, and he had four lesions. So his MS was pretty active in terms of inflammatory activity. And he had acquired enormous amounts of end organ damage in that uh, six-year period since he had his first clinical attack. Um, and this is one of the problems with multiple sclerosis: is that you know, for every clinical attack or symptom, you, there are ten or more lesions that are occurring uh, on an MRI scan that you can't see. And even that's the tip of the tip of the iceberg, because most MS lesions are microscopic, and we're not seeing them on MRI. So this put, poor man had probably very active MS and had been acquiring damage uh, while, they, while his neurologist was waiting for him to have the next big attack to label him as having MS to offer him a disease-modifying treatment. Um, also, because he had had progressive uh, weakness over the last 12 months. Uh, And when you go into his history, his cognitive problems were probably getting worse over about two years. You know, this gentleman probably had secondary progressive MS according to our current definition. You know, you have to have six months of worsening without relapses. And I didn't want to label him as secondary progressive MS back then because we had no treatment. So I actually gave him the benefit of the doubt and said he had relapsing MS. And I took a more detailed history from him, and he had volunteered about eight months earlier that he had a, probably had a sensory attack um, that qualified as a, a, a subjective uh, a relapse. I mean, he recalls um, having uh, symptoms when he had numbness and pins and needles in his feet and he noticed his gait was more unsteady. Um, And he recalls that he wasn't able to climb stairs and he had difficulty walking down escalators. So I said to him that was almost certainly an attack and I then classified that uh, episode of weakness in his lower limbs as another attack and I said to him, you've got rapidly evolving severe MS because you've had two relapses in a 12-month period. Your MRI scans got gadolinium enhancing lesions. Therefore, you have MS, you have rapidly evolving severe MS, and therefore you're eligible for highly effective therapies. And I actually offered him, and he accepted an offer of natalizumab, and we started him on natalizumab. Now, saying that, though, a lot of my colleagues would not have classified that uh, historical relapse as a relapse because he wasn't examined, examined during the attack and wasn't documented. The NHS England guidelines are pretty Uh, 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 clear that you have to have documented relapses Uh, and, and, and some neurologists also would have said that this was not necessarily a disabling attack because he functioned normally through the attack he didn't require steroids and he didn't require hospital admissions you know some people set the bar very high for what they call a disabling attack my opinion it's semantics i give the person with the disease the benefit of the doubt and if this attack or that attack back then impacted on his ability to function you know, what I call activities of daily living, his ability to get to work or to socialize, uh, then it's a disabling attack. And if you live in London, being able to walk down an escalator or not being able to walk down an escalator or walk up an escalator without using, it's disabling. So I uh, classified his two attacks as disabling. And I'm aware that a lot of my colleagues would disagree with me on that. Um, <clears throat> anyway, the good news... Um, um, uh, is that this patient, since been on atalizumab, has been uh, free of inflammatory disease activity, no evident inflammatory disease activity. He has got slightly worse, unfortunately. He's uh, now using two walking sticks. His EDSS, he's got, he, um, his EDSS now is um, uh, 6.5. Okay? He needs bilateral support. But importantly, he has maintained upper limb function uh, he had to give up work over the last uh, 8 years uh, he now works uh for free you know he donates his time to a charity uh, part time but he had he he, he did get some uh, an insurance policy paying out i think it was 40 or 50% of his salary when he had to retire on medical grounds so um, he's okay he tells me from a financial perspective okay um I actually wonder what would have happened if this young gentleman uh, when he was 32, he's only now 40, had started treatment when he was clinically in the clinical isolated syndrome stage. Um, you know, would the starting of, even if it was an interferon had prevented him from developing cognitive impairment, would he now be mobile still? Would he have had protection of his brain volume? You know, would his bladder and bowel function and sexual function be normal? And would he still be employed? These are the kind of things that haunt us as neurologists. You know, The delay in diagnosis and access to treatment, I suspect, has had uh, consequences for this individual. And I think now that we have good phase three trial data uh, also from extension studies, and we have the real-life registry data from these big registries, uh, MS Base, Sweden, ta- Italy, France. It's quite clear now that early access to DMTs, and particularly early access to the highly effective disease-modifying treatments, delays disability progression and also the time to secondary progressive MS. So I have little doubt that, based on the data, this gentleman has suffered the consequences of delayed diagnosis and treatment. And unfortunately, once you acquire quite a lot of end organ damage, in other words, you have brain volume loss, you have black holes on the so-called T1-weighted MRI imaging. You know the, those are the uh, lesions that are more destructive. Once you've acquired damage, your reserve, your ability to recover function drops. So therefore, your, the benefits of treatment are, are less. Uh, and so, th- even though this gentleman got onto a highly effective therapy, got onto it late, and therefore the benefits to him are reduced. Um, Now, one of the things that I have observed, and I've written about this before, is that people who do get onto highly effective therapies when they're more advanced with disability often continue to get worse. And the reason for that is is that worsening now or the next 12 to 24 months is driven by the inflammatory activity in the past. And by stopping new lesions and inflammation now actually has benefits in the future. So that's what I call therapeutic lag. And the more disabled you are, the longer the lag period. Because some of the treatment effects are also about recovery of function. And when you have got poor reserve or you're older, you just can't recover function. So we don't see improvements occurring. Uh, Anyway, I've actually written a... uh, a, um, an MSLFA newsletter from actually from when I first started off the MSLFA back in July 2021 on getting worse, and it's one of the most read newsletters. So if you haven't read it, I would urge you to click on the link and read that because that explains why people get worse despite being free of relapses or inflammatory disease activity. This, this, this individual, for example. Now, I know that this patient's story is historical. Uh, and things have changed, and I completely agree now that most neurologists will at least offer people with high-risk CIS clinical syndrome treatments. But the problem we have in the NHS that it's still the old injectable therapies that are available for treating CIS. That's interferon beta and glatiramer acetate. All the newer or more effective therapies are not available. And so one of the things some people do is then still wait for the next attack, so they have CIS, or wait for. Uh, new lesions on MRI to, to diagnose them as MS. Or we're going to p- apply the uh, new McDonald criteria for making the diagnosis of MS more strictly, and that means doing a lumbar puncture. And when you have local synthesis of oligoclonal those are immunoglobulin IgG bands, that can be substituted for dissemination in time. Now, this patient back in 2014, uh, well, actually, 20, 20, 20, uh, 2008 would actually fulfill the new McDonald criteria, criteria for having MS. So if you went back to historically, you could say he had MS in 2008. Unfortunately, applying the McDonald criteria retrospectively is a difficult thing. So you can't go back and say he had MS, he should have been treated. But anyway, now for people presenting with their first event, uh, doing a CSF is very, very helpful in making the diagnosis of MS rather than CIS, which opens up other treatment options. So you had one attack – Okay, you've got dissemination in time and space based on the new criteria. therefore, you have active MS that you can be offered not only the injectables, but you can go into the oral treatments, uh, dimethyl fumarate, uh, panitumod, teriflunomide, and you can also offer the anti-CD20 therapies. That's so ocrelizumab and ofatumumab, because they are licensed for active MS. Unfortunately, you can't offer t- tier two and three in the more active therapies. Uh, Because you have to have rapidly evolving severe. And this is one of the what frustrates me is the only highly effective therapies that are available first line in people with active MS are the anti-CD20 therapies. And there are lots of issues around those long term. And that's why I'm personally trying to lobby both Merck and Biogen. These are the manufacturers of cladribine and natalizumab to please go to the MHRA and make the case for a label change. I can't see any reason why we can't use cladribine first line in people with CIS or early MS and similarly natalizumab, particularly in the JC virus negative population that have low risk of PML. Why would we not want to offer them natalizumab? Now, you may disagree with me on this, but I think we as a MS community need to push this issue. You know, why should we have to wait for people to have a second attack? At, um, uh, and put them at risk of damage from that second attack, or at risk of damage from the activity that occurs subclinically on MRI uh, before they have that sec- second attack, to be able to offer them more effective therapies. Okay. Anyway, w- we are so concerned about the delayed access to highly effective treatments that we have starting a trial called the Attack MS trial, uh, and what we're trying to test with this trial is treat does treating MS as soon as possible with a highly effective therapy, natalizumab. Okay, and this is within 14 days of symptom onset, improves outcome compared to delayed access to maybe in other words, waiting three, three months, which we think is the normal period of time it takes for a person to get diagnosed and be put onto treatment. And uh, this trial, I think, is very innovative. It's aim- it aims to approach the treatment of MS like we treat stroke. Now, we know in stroke, minutes and hours makes an enormous difference to outcome. And what we're saying is days and weeks makes an enormous difference to outcome. And Professor Klaus Chimera in our center is the clinical lead on this. And i put two slides up uh, in the uh, online or in the MS selfie so that you can look at uh, the inclusion criteria and the trial design. But I am very excited by this because if this study is positive, it's going to change the way the MS community approaches multiple sclerosis. Okay. Okay. Um, Anyway, I would like your help. Uh, could you please spread the message locally? Um, you know, And the question I want to ask you, and this is a mental exercise, if you were right at the very beginning of your diagnosis, or a family member, let's say it's a sister or brother or a child of yours, has their first clinical attack? Would you want them to be in a trial like this to see if very if, uh, early, highly effective treatment? So this would be flipping the pyramid as soon as possible as a positive outcome in terms of uh, MS compared to delayed access uh, to treatment. That's the question we need to know from you. Would you participate, or would you one of your family? Me- would you encourage one of your family members uh, to participate? Anyway, I, I think this trial will be positive. I give it a high a high a high a chance of being positive based on my experience of treating MS over the last 30 years. Uh, I would say this trial has about a 75 to 80% chance of being positive. And if it is positive, okay, and shows that starting a high efficacy therapy, you know, just, you know, um, 10 weeks earlier has an outcome, then we are going to have to put systems in place, treatment pathways, not only for diagnosis, but for treatment. Uh, to really optimize the uh, management of multiple sclerosis. Anyway, if you have any qu- questions about this uh, case study or the issues raised in this newsletter, please uh, leave a comment. I'll get back to you on that. And I'd like to urge anybody listening to this to please uh, subscribe. Um, uh, what One thing I've noticed is that when people's subscri- annual subscription comes to renew, a lot of them aren't renewing. And so I'm actually losing subscribers at quite a high rate. And that's quite worrying because... Um, for this uh, MSLF initiative to be long-term, to be viable long-term, I really do need a steady income from it. Not for myself. Um, I'm using the money to pay for a medical writer and a web designer, and the and the website's looking very good. We've actually beta tested it now with quite a few people with MS, and we've got some changes to make. And we're hoping to make it go live in the next few uh, months, at least. Uh, the the, the first part of the uh, website. And the whole idea is to actually create a curated experience for people with newly diagnosed MS. So you don't have to trawl through, uh, you know, MS selfie newsletters from the past. It actually curates it into a wonderfully uh, indexed uh, uh, website that you can find information with one or two clicks. So that's the purpose of the uh, pain subscribers. Now, if you can't afford to subscribe, don't worry about it. Don't feel guilty. It's only if you can afford it um, because this is free to all readers. Um, I'm just hoping that by encouraging people who can afford to donate, we can actually make this a viable long-term initiative. Anyway, enjoy and uh, Happy New Year.